Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We're sitting here with the Sonoran Desert meets the Mojave, and we're looking at a beautiful green pool. It is fall in the desert, and the temperature's lovely. In the distance, you can see mountains jutting up from the valley, surrounded by Joshua trees. And I'm sitting with Tommy Cummins in his home. Tommy was born in Alaska in 1944. He's traveled from Alaska to Texas to California and back here to Arizona. As he puts it, he's been surviving for almost 80 years here on this planet. He was in the LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department, for 32 years from the late 1960s to the 90s. He played baseball, he was a boxer, he was an undercover agent, and he was a helicopter pilot during the Olympics in 84. There's many stories to tell, and I'm just honored to be sitting here with you, Tommy, in your home. Thank you for joining me on the trail less traveled. Oh, you're welcome. Tommy, my first question for you is, where did you grow up, and how was adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up just a few years in Texas. Mainly, I grew up in uh, California, and I uh, just did a lot of things to survive. You know, growing up, being able to see how the South was, you know, with the separation of colored fountains and all these different things, and that was a big impression on me growing up, to find out why, and where was my place, and why am I being held back? And I think all these things motivated me to uh, try them all. My first experience was while I was going to high school. I had a friend, a white friend, his name was Harold. And we were the best of friends. So after we graduated, we went looking for a job. He'd go down one side of the street, I'd go down the other side of the street. And what happened was, he'd find jobs and uh, I couldn't find one. So he'd say, you're just unlucky. So we went again every day. He'd come up with four or five jobs, and I couldn't find a job. So what we did, we went together. And we went together, nobody found a job. So I had one experience that hurt me to my soul. They gave us a test, the tool and die making company. And I'm 17 years old, they gave us a test. And it was 25 questions. I took the test, we sit down, we waited for the results. Harold came out, he said, I got the job. He said, how'd you do? I said, I don't know. He came out, he said, well, how many did you get right? And I said, I don't know. I said, how many did you get right? He said, out of 25, he said, I got 18. I said, oh, I know I beat you. So anyway, we go and we ask the lady behind the counter. I said to the receptionist, I said, how did I do on my test? She said, oh, oh, and she was looking for it. So when I turned my back, she found it. It was all crumbled up. I said, how many did I get right? She said, you got them all right. And I said, well, can I get one of these shop coats? She said, you're too smart for the job. You don't want this job. And I said, well, wait a minute. You gave us 25. He got 18. You got all them dudes up there lined up. Why did I get the job? She said, let me get the shop for him. She went and got the shop for him, and he came back. He had a heavy accent. He put his hand right in the center of my chest. He says, 
we don't hire your kind. And Harold said, what did you say? That's my best friend. He reached around and hit him right in the jaw. They called the police department. Guess who went to jail? Well, they took us way out. And he looked at me and I said, I didn't do it. Harold said, I did it, I did it. He said, I'm gonna let you go. He said, because you played football, I used to always bet on you. So they took us out about 15, 20 miles and let us out. And that's when I got experience to America. We sit on curb and we cried for 45 minutes. Cause that's how much he was hurt and I was hurt cause we didn't understand. That was my beginning of how America rolled. We're speaking with Tommy Cummins. He was born in 1944. This is the trail less traveled. Tommy, could you tell us a little bit more about growing up in the South? Well, my grandmother, they lived in the country. We would go out there and stay, but growing up in the South, it was like when you went to the movies, you always had to go and sit upstairs in the back. Yeah, you always had to go in the back. Being a little boy, I didn't know, you know, I just go in the back. Or when I really got experience was, we was coming back, my mama used to clean houses for white folks and she had to take me to the doctor, so she took me to work with her. But we had to ride a bus, we didn't have a car. My experience on that was when we got on the bus, the first thing we had to do was go to the back of the bus. And when the bus was full, black folks had to get up and let white folks sit down. Just to ask my mama, I said, mama, you tired, why you got to get up? She said, that's okay, you just, just, just get up. When you go drink the water, it said colored. It was so low, it just run back out of your mouth. So what you do, you sneak and drink the white folks. Oh, and you're talking about some trouble. But anyway, that was my experience as being young to still remember how it was or how it is. This evening, the trail less traveled is being recorded in northwestern Arizona, where the Mojave and the Sonoran Desert meet. We're at the base of the Hualapai Mountains, and I'm here with Tommy Cummins, who was born in 1944. He grew up in the south. He was with the LAPD for over 30 years. He played baseball. He was a boxer. He collects classic cars. We're standing right now next to his 1939... Master Deluxe Chevy. Master Deluxe Chevy, and another wonderful vehicle, which is a... 57 Tamil Suburban, one of the two, yeah. And the one that's um, on the side of the house you're going to fix up for your son? No, my son going to help me fix it up. <laughs> <laughs> and his son is standing right now here. His name is Chase. Uh, I'm going to hand the mic over to you, Chase, and I was wondering if there's anything you might like to ask your dad. I like to ask, uh, when am I going to get these cars? When are these going to be mine? <laughs> when that flower's going out the middle of my chest. <laughs> yeah, what was that one more time? When that flower's going out the middle of my chest and not a cactus, neither. Yeah, I also got a 56 for it. It's just nice. Chase, I was going to ask your dad about the story of this vehicle. What do you know about your dad's car here, this one? I just know it's the car that he's had the longest, that he's had since he was a teenager. Tell the story. Well, you know, uh, when I was a teenager, I got it when I was 14. No, I got it from my neighbor who had killed his wife, and I was about 13 or 14, and he told me, he said, give me $60 and give it to my son, and you can have it. So he gave me the paperwork and the keys, and then it took me six months to pay for it. Six months, that's it? For $60, I was throwing papers. Yeah, I was throwing papers. That was a long... Yeah, but I had it ever since. I got it in 1959 or or 58 or whatever. How'd you know that guy? He lived next door to us. You know, you're young, you don't understand. 
Jason, what's your favorite story that y your dad has told you or that you think that people might like to hear? Ooh, okay, hold on. I gotta think about this one for a second because there's a lot. You beating UCLA's baseball team when you're in high school. That's right. That was USC. Or USC. They had a top-notch baseball team. They came over in high school and played. A, they had won the NCAA, and we beat them three games. <laughs> and he said this didn't ever happen. What year was it? 60-something. They was number one in baseball. They played the high school because we had a lot of talent. When I went to play the Pirates, I can name when I got drafted. It was the first black man of the Yankees, Bobby Watson. He was in my class. Bobby Tolan had played for uh, Cincinnati. He was in my class. Willie Crawford, it was 18, came out of a high school and went straight to the pros. Isn't that something? It is amazing. Reggie Smith played with Boston, and that was the funnest time when you beat somebody like that. Especially the crooked NCAA. <laughs> Who else you want to ask? You know how much all of them weighed when they was born? <laughs> <laughs> they always buy 11 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> what about the fashion show that you put on at the house in Inglewood? Oh, the Jackson 5. I knew all of them. I knew the daddy, Joe Jackson. And, uh, oh, I could tell you some history about that. <laughs> we have uh, a picture uh, with uh, my uh, uncle. Oh, yes. They was, whoa, jeez. <laughs> I'm telling you, we knew, I knew everybody. We had a big house over there, and everybody would come. I wasn't no celebrity. I was just a nice person. <laughs> I'll tell you a story about Michael Jackson. And he brought them all over, and so we had a pool, and so uh, they all got out of their clothes, and they dove in the pool. And I asked him, can they swim? He said, I don't know. I said, I ain't going in and get them. I said, when you bring your own, you got to watch your own. So it was another kid named Mill. We jumped in there and pulled them out. We pulled two out. That's the truth. So anyway, the world owed me for saving him. <laughs> for saving Michael Jackson. That's right. He sure did. Oh, man. And see, they didn't believe me, but I pulled out pictures. You pulled out show. pictures, and I was just uh, like, yep. Well, you can't argue with this. Yep. Uh, yep. I mean, they just dove in the pool. <laughs> just like it wasn't nothing. I said, okay, get them out. Because <laughs> see, in California, even though it says sunny, it's cold. It's cold at night, and that pool is cold. So I said, get them out. You know, so I had them when I was older. There's a lot of stuff they don't believe. So yeah. I had to go dig up some dirt. And then my sister saw us a lot. We don't believe him a lot, but he's got, I got backup. He's got yep. proof of it. Yep, yep. Well, I was thinking, I was talking about, you know, I had graduated from UCLA. I forgot. I was digging around in the office. I said, here it is, right? <laughs> Chase, can you tell us about you know, growing up with your dad and some of the stories that he may have told you about growing up in the South? I'm wondering what resonates with you that he's shared with you. We had similar experience in Kingman with them. That's true. Like growing up yes. in a majority white place and being the only darker people that go to the school. It's not, we weren't the only ones, but there's very few. What, about 10? I don't even think it was that. One ten. For a long time, it was just two families. It was us and another family. And then more people slowly started to trickle in. And then I think by the time Cameron graduated, I think at the school, there's probably like 30. Maybe, of, maybe, maybe. Out of 2,000. How the hell scholarships back and hit. Mm -hmm. I fought. They called me a racist down at the school. I had to take them to court about not 
let my sons play in 121 degree weather. In soccer, they said that oh, every, they, couldn't, they couldn't play because they were too big. Yeah, we couldn't play in the whole football league because we were too big. They said they'd hurt our kids. Yeah. So Chase, can you tell us a little bit about growing up in Kingman, Arizona, which is where we're recording the show right now, your home? It's an interesting place. It's a place where you want to admire it from a distance because once you actually get into the town and involved with everything, it's completely different. Growing up, he would make us walk to the park and you would hear racial stuff get yelled at the window and stuff get thrown out the window. If it rained and we're walking, get splashed by cars and trucks. It's just something that became a part of our lives. But the older we got and the bigger we got, the less and less people mess with us. There's people that still tried us, but then they learned who we were. The wrong people. <laughs> As a family, and even though they might call us trouble here, they have a lot of respect for us because we're genuine people. We keep what, it real. What do they call me? Trouble. Everywhere it goes is trouble. Here come trouble. Because he's always stirring the pot. I mean, but it's not for anything bad. It's to get things changed the in the right thing. directions. And he never complains without having a solution already ready. So your father was talking about growing up during the Civil Rights Movement and how Marvin Gaye, one of his friends, mm -hmm. the lyrics to the song, What's Going On, is mm -hmm. actually happening right now from someone who is maybe similar age to me. Can mm -hmm. you tell us about what's happening right now? What's happening in the world? We have a division going on in our country, and it's a similar division. It didn't go away, but it was hidden for a long time, and the man that we have in power now has reawakened with people feared in their hearts from people of other colors, and it's just, it's not on the rise because it's always been there, but it's not being closeted anymore because we have somebody who's almost making it okay for it to be that way. We've had, we have to come together as a whole again to reconnect to one another, to come back and put us in the right direction again. You know who caused it? Who? Barack Obama. He did. What he did was he took the cover off of racism. He said, here it is. Yep, when you got elected as president, when he got elected, why would people he had parades with him hanging, like caricatures of him hanging, but then have the audacity to say, when people had marches against Donald Trump, it's the worst the president has ever been treated. When you have stuff that's been stemming for the past 400 years reawakened, in the past 10 years, it's ridiculous. There's nothing that we as America shouldn't stand for that. And I think there's a lot of people that turn a blind eye to it because it doesn't affect them. Racism is still there. Katrina. Katrina showed how racist it is. It looks the same. Yep. Ain't nothing changed. Puerto Rico, ain't nothing changed. White folks have to get it in their heart that all of us are the same. Yep. The last segregated problem happened in 2012. Uh-huh. I don't talk to them about racism. I don't. I talk to them how to understand it. It's something that you feel. You can walk into a room or a building and you can feel the energy and the eyes just cutting and darting and looking at you, especially in this place. Everywhere you go, it's just a presence that you feel. They was always the tops in their school is academic. They was the top in, don't even mention sports, we just blew this town up. They wrote an article, why is this family in the paper all the time? We didn't write it. <laughs> we didn't write it. So it's there's things like how many times did this man over here talk? Never. Yeah. He used to be a teacher for the school, the high school in town. See there? 
Yeah. So what's the teaching? What are they teaching young kids when, when, when Barack Obama became president and they talked down on him so bad? There's teachers in our school that are saying we're black because it's the beginning of the death of America. Yep. Yep. Just because there's a black man in power. That's sad. It, it's sad. and, and, and we It just shows the fear and hate that people still hold. Ain't nobody. Over nothing. Over nothing. Ain't nobody holding it but who? It gets better and better with it's every like, generation. Like attrition. It's well, just a big circle. Life is a big circle. It's just coming full circle. I got one for you never thought about how great the world is. You can go where you can be happy. You can be around all the same kind. Personally, I like jelly beans. <laughs> you want to buy some jelly beans, they're all the same color. Well, I want them. I want all the jelly beans. I mean, that's, beans. What the, that's what America's supposed to be. It's supposed to be the melting pot of all the cultures. That's Religions, right. you're supposed to come here free of persecution. Yep. But persecution has been going on since the beginning of the country, so I think it's almost that people don't know because it's happened for so long. It's just it's something I think that's going to be ingrained. All about with white folks. We ain't going to be in charge. Whoa, me. We ain't going to be in charge. Come on now. You've been, you had it all these years. Just share it. And I want to see everybody. And like when I used to interview, I would not look at who I'm interviewing. They would get mad. I said, I want to see them. What I got to see them? Mm-hmm. It takes the prejudice away. I guess. I want whatever you got to offer. And they would go, well, and I wind up getting the best people every time. That's why I like radio, is because I get to use my intellect. There's no yes. image involved. Yes. You can't see the face behind yes. the voice. Yes. Because sometimes when you see that face, you go, oh, <laughs> I don't like that song no more. <laughs> <laughs> and you know you do it. You go, they don't match. They don't match. That's why I used to tell them all the time. Don't text me. Don't text your girlfriend. Call her on the phone. Yeah. You got to have some personal communication. Just saying, you know, you got to talk. That's because there's a I lot of no social you. cues you can get from in person, from like face, tone, body language. Yeah. And it's a lot of things that attribute to that. So we're standing here in the driveway of Tommy Cummins and his son, Chase, while standing next to his 1939 Buick. Chevy. Chevy, sorry. Dang it. <laughs> the Buick's in the back. Yeah. The Chevy. And uh, it's now time for a song. So Chase, since you're standing here and you've been part of this interview, your dad's chosen some music, can you share with us a song that reminds you of a little bit what we're talking about right now? I want to say what's going on by Marvin Gaye again, but I already know that's already been played. Oh, War by Ewing Star? Yeah, yeah. What is it good for? Yeah, War. Yeah, War. What is it good for? Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. nothing. Yeah. Oh, that's, 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 what's going, that's what's going on right oh, now. kind of deep. you kind of deep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good. Absolutely nothing. Say it again. We're recording The Trail Has Traveled today in northwestern Arizona. We're at the home of Tommy Cummins. He was born in 1944. He grew up in the South. He was with the LAPD for 30 years. He served in Vietnam. He collects classic cars, and we're standing right next to a 1939 Chevy that he got in high school. And he also restores many other cars that we might be able to walk around and see. But a major part of Tommy's life was baseball. When I first started playing baseball, went right after high school, what I found out was, here we go again, racism. When you go to each town, you know, you got your team, and you're on a bus. And when I first went out, what I realized was, when you go to these different parks, I never got to see the main entrance, like Riverfront and, you know, all over the United States. Now, I didn't pay much attention because, you know, I was 17. And I didn't pay that attention. And then when I talked to other ball players, one in particular, Joe Morgan, I said, 
I haven't got to see the front of all these stadiums. He said, me neither. He said, all my rooms are by the ice machine and the stairs. And I said, yeah. So what happened was they were selecting for the white players. They would give them all the keys where, if you've been in any hotels or motels, that Coke machine be making some noise in an ice machine. So you can't sleep. So they had all the good rooms and we didn't. But being young, you didn't understand. You thought baseball was for everybody. So what we finally did was we had breakfast together and I asked him, why can't we uh, get some of them rooms away from the Coke machine? And he said, well, we just put them in a bucket and we just pull out the keys and the room numbers. And we said, okay, all right. So we had one white player, and I, I don't want to name him, but he was from California. He said, I'm going to get the keys. He got the keys, and he would get the keys all the time. So now we all at breakfast, so the white ball players would say, I can't get no sleep. I can't get no sleep. You know, we bought a Coke machine, this and that. And the manager sitting there. I said, well, they all been pulled out of a bucket. They were going, BS. So what happened, they took the bucket. And when they took the bucket, of course, we went back to by the stairs. You got to skin a cat two or three ways. So what I decided to do was I couldn't catch no more. So the pitchers ERA will go up to eight and nine. And so now everybody's pissed off again. I said, if I can't sleep, ain't nobody going to sleep. So it's little things like that that average American don't see that was going on that they changed. Also, when we would go through, like going to uh, these different towns in the South, they would always try to let us off in the colored part of town, you know. So we said, nope, we ride and we're going to go in these same hotels. And so a lot of the northern cities, we kind of experienced it, but, you know, they just dealt with it. Because by then, we was playing some ball. You know, you had a lot of stars coming along. So uh, it changed a lot. I also met, what's his name? Oh, who changed Australia? Plays a trumpet. He wouldn't perform. He was another genius. And he did a lot of touring because I did bodyguard with them. And he told me, he said, the Aborigines couldn't come into town after six o'clock. And he said, I will not perform. And he didn't perform and they changed that. So it's things that people don't believe that's happening, it happens. Just like my son have the same experiences in the 20s and I was in the 60s and it hadn't changed. But anyway, so baseball was a good experience. The pitchers, when we would come to bat, now what I did was, he was gonna call me out. So it was a ball that went over my head, I swung at it anyway. I said, he didn't call me out. So it's things that you battle with, you know. You know, you don't look at them. It's just racism is what's wrong with America. This is in sports, this is in religion. Religion is the most segregated part of America. Only 5% integrate with religion in America. We're speaking with Tommy Cummins. He was born in 1944. He grew up in the South and was part of the LAPD for over 30 years. We're recording at his house here in Northwestern Arizona. And Tommy, you're a music man. We are both music people. I would like to talk to you about music, particularly in the 60s, and how it brought people together and helped people stay strong in the face of racism. That's right, that's right. It was music that did it. What I knew was one of the greatest things ever was Motown. It brought everybody together. John Lennon, his favorite genius, he called him, was Marvin Gaye. All this music united America. And what did America do? It was becoming too united. It created Vietnam. It split us up. It filled us up with fear and hate and all this. But the thing what, what kept us together 
was music. In the case of reggae music, they weren't having it. They weren't gonna have it because it was talking about the man. It was talking about the system. So they made it illegal, made it outlaw. I confiscated when I was working for the LSPD tons of reggae albums. I wish I still had them. Mm. And just tons of them. And also, incidentally, when I first started working for the Los Angeles Police Department, you know what my job was? My job was to go see what they was doing with the Muslim Temple. Think about it. Way back then, you would have to do a report. They said, what are they doing now? I say, they're on a blanket praying. I'm a young man. I'm not even thinking about this whole big picture that they're trying to create. And I said, they're just on their knees praying. And they would go, well, you got to run them off the corner from selling papers and, and bean pies. And I wouldn't do it. So I got 10 days off with no pay. But it's these things that was going on then it's going on right now. What a Donald Trump, we don't want no more Muslims in. Why? Back then, the first thing my job to do, because I was black, was to go in and infiltrate the black Muslims. And it's still going on. So these things, when you get my age, you don't see no change. Marvin Gaye made a song that's called, Throw Up Both Your Hands and Holler. And when you throw up your, that means you're done. But I ain't quit because I got these boys. Tommy. You have mentioned being a agent and being a security guard for people like Ronald Reagan. And yeah. I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that aspect of your life with the LAPD from the late 1960s until the 90s, you know, that kind of secret agent side of it. We got the most undesired jobs. Nobody wants to work Halloween where everybody got on a uniform. That ain't nothing but a death trap right there. You know, they have these Halloween parades. I got a good one for you. Patty Hearst. When the Los Angeles Police Department, I was on vacation, and I said, they ain't going to take him alive. They're going to kill him. And what they do? They burn that house down. Because, you know, her daddy was probably one of the richest men in California. She was with that SLA, and they was mainly black men and white women. So when they had him captured in this part of town, and so all the black officers, we would make bets. I said, they're going to kill him. And what they do? They kill him. You shared some really amazing advice with me recently, and I feel like that's part of what your job was as a security guard. You said to me, whenever you enter a building, immediately look for your exit. Tell us more about that and that kind of state of mind that a, an agent or a security guard for very, very important or famous people has to kind of tune in on. Well, here's the thing. Being a black man, you always have to have a way out. And this is everybody in life. Whenever you're in a building, the first thing you should do is look at to find your exit. Because it's important. You never know what's coming up. You never what's going down. So when you walk in a building, I don't care if you're going into school to pick up your kids. You look where the exit door is. And you teach your kids, look for another way out. And California has instituted that every building that's built and driveway have an exit and an entrance. In Arizona, it's like going into a cave. <laughs> These are some things that you learn by living it and seeing it and watching it. So uh, we have to really be careful. Go in, look around, see your way out, and you'll feel more comfortable. If it ain't no way out, stand in the doorway. And this is some good advice because I've seen it work. My state of mind came from being black. 
Then I transferred it over to working security and with the police department. My state of mind by being black is, I gotta know which way I'm gonna go if something go down. So I was successful. So when I became a police officer, I had to say the same thing. You know, I don't trust these dudes, so especially working vice with other people. I can tell you a quick story. I had a job, I was working vice in Minnesota. What does that mean, vice? Vice, it's like undercover. Undercover, okay. Yeah, that's what I'm gonna tell you about. So I was working vice in Minnesota. And so I'm from California, so in Minnesota, it's always 100 degrees below zero. So <laughs> we go to Minnesota. What happened was, we waited on this guy to come out. So when we got there, it was about 10 o'clock, and about 8 o'clock, and it was like 20 degrees. And I just left 85 degree weather, about 20 degrees. So I'm sitting there with a bunch of dudes I don't even know. Everybody's sitting there farting and laughing and whatever it was. And So then about 12 o'clock, it got down to about minus 10. So I said, excuse me, and let me tell you what they was doing to me, because I was new to them. They were saying, well, you got to go get us the coffee. Yeah, I didn't want to sit up in there with them anyway. So I go get the coffee, and they come back and say, well, we're going to wait a little longer. So we need more coffee. So I get out the back seat, and I go get the coffee, and I come back. This happened five times. So when I went to get the coffee, now I'm pissed off. So I went and got the coffee. I said, well, I ain't taking this no longer. So they said, well, let's go break down the door. We're going to catch it. I said, you can't. Just come back to Lamar. See, they had me there because I had went to high school with the dude that they was after. So I said, you can't catch him. His name was, I don't want to say his name. I said, you can't catch him. I said, just wait till Lamar. You know what they did? He said, well, Cummins, you was the biggest. I used to weigh 240. He said, well, you're going to be the leaf. I said, nope, I'm not going. I said, don't go in there. And got the ram, the bus through the door. Two of them got shot in the back because he was behind the door above them. So it goes around. They said that I told them they wanted to fire me or call the PD. They wanted to get rid of me because they said I must have told him. And I was so pissed off. I said, yep, if I did tell them, just say I did tell them. I said, what did I tell you? And so one officer, he said, Tommy, I wish I had a listen because you can't make me endanger myself. I don't care who you are. We're giving you a direct order. I said, I ain't going. So I said, if I did tell him, what did I tell you? And the jaws just hit the ground. So those are the things that go on, you know, that people don't see. You gotta laugh. I was using the bathroom at Costco and thought about something happened there and started laughing. Everybody looked at me and ran out the bathroom. <laughs> but anyway, these are the things that you have to do to adjust in your mind in order to withstand some of the things that happen that America does to young black men. And all of this is the truth. That's the voice of Tommy Cummins. It's a beautiful sunset right now. Uh, is that the Hualapai Mountains right there? Yeah, they right over there. They're 9,400 feet. The tallest in Arizona. Yes. For the listener, Tommy, can you describe what you're looking at right now? Like everything from your 1939 Chevy to the purple glow on the mountains over there at your home? It looks so peaceful. You know, it's quiet. It's just beautiful. We got the best looking sunset. And right back over in there, when I moved it, it was nothing over there. I got about 4,000 acres over there. But there was nothing over there. My neighbors up there and up there, they always ask me when I first moved there, what do you do? I said, what do you think I do? I sell drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy, it's time for a song. What song would you like to share with a listener? Okay, let me think. Let me think. I hate to go to Marvin Gaye again, but I, I, I just... It's called God is Love, and uh, that's a beautiful song. Just got to listen to the album. That'll be a good one. 
because he sang from his heart. Ah. This evening, we are recording The Trail Less Traveled in the driveway of Tommy Cummins. He was born in 1944. He grew up in the South, was with the LAPD for over 30 years. He played baseball. He was a boxer. He served in Vietnam. He was friends with Marvin Gaye. He's an amazing storyteller. Tommy, I'd like to ask you about the world right now. The world is like a gigantic human being. It's just a big body, a huge body with all these billion parts on it. And what people understand is, it's like a tree also. If one of them parts ain't working, we gotta take care of it. We gotta take care of it. No matter how big it is or how small it is. I just look at it as like, when you got a part that's hurting, you're supposed to concentrate on trying to fix it. Don't just cut it off, fix it. And care about everybody in the world. I don't care where they come from, what they look like. Ain't no one person's life more important than the other person's life. And you got to do like they did in the 60s. If you can remember the 60s, all the songs was about love. Think just about every song you came out talked about love. And that's what we need to go back to. We need to talk about love. We need to talk about personal feelings. And you have to do the golden rule. Take care of this big body, like global warming. Global warming is this giant body that we need to start to take care of it. And all this greed, this capitalism, which is turned into greedism, that's the part that's sad. All this isolationism, you know, building a fort around America. For what? Didn't work. All the forts got burned down. So what we have to really think about is this giant, giant, giant human. That's where I look at the world. And you have to take care of it. If you don't, it ain't going to take care of you. So, you know, people all over the world, even they see it in Europe, but for some reason, we're just blind. We're stuck on money. We're stuck on greed. We're stuck on ourselves. So we need to get back to, like, all athletes, they start to get out of hand. And you know what the first thing they do? They say, go back to your basics. We need families to stay together. If you look at the world, everything that got united in front of is successful. All the ones that don't, they don't. Just think about it. Look at the world as everybody's part of it, and we have to take care of it. If we do, it'll be a better place for everybody, especially our kids. Tommy, I'd just like to say thank you so much for your time and energy and letting me come to your home to hear your stories and interview you today for the Trail S Trap. You're quite welcome, and it was nice meeting you, Missoula. You have you got some deep, deep, deep inside of you. And what I would like to talk to you some more is because there's some things inside of you that I can feel, and I'm going to find out one day. <laughs> Sounds good. I look forward to speaking with you again, Tommy. Okay. Let's end your show with three bits of advice that you can share with the listener, maybe different than you gave before. The old saying, love your neighbor, the other thing, to forgive. Just forgive. Whatever the reason, forgive. And you can't solve a problem unless you talk. You can't. And don't be right all the time like I am. <laughs> <laughs> what song would you like to end your show with? I'd like to end my soul with, uh, it's called We The People by the OJs. And uh, play it and you'll go, oh yeah, that's cool. <laughs> that's, that's good. That's my feeling about America in these years that I've been here.
Namaste, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, The Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series. I'd like to thank my guest for this week, Tommy Cummins. Tommy is a retired LAPD vice undercover officer, pro baseball player for the Pirates, and best friend to Marvin Gaye. Tommy was born in 1944 and grew up in the South. He was shot twice during the Civil Rights Movement and went on to work as a security guard for Ronald Reagan. Tommy lives in Arizona and manages to keep laughing and fighting for civil rights on a daily basis. The Trail Less Traveled premieres every Sunday evening at 6, and you can stream the show live online at trail1033.com. If you missed the premiere of the show, definitely check out the full archive of almost 400 episodes on the official website, traillesstraveled.net. The show is also an award-winning podcast that's available on all platforms, including Spotify and Pandora. My adventure tip this week is simply to remind you of the golden rule. Treat others the way that you would like to be treated. I'd like to end this episode with a recording by American civil rights activist Martin Luther King Jr. Here is a recording of his I Have a Dream speech during the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom on August 28, 1963, in which he called for civil and economic rights and an end to racism in the United States. This speech was delivered to over 250,000 civil rights supporters from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. The speech was a defining moment in the civil rights movement and among the most iconic speeches in American history. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities. Knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friend, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children 
will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith. We will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring. From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the crevaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. <laughs>